You're listening to MPS Connections with Brian Bruton. Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of MPS Connections. It's hard to believe that we're almost to 10 episodes. Um, we've had some great topics in the past. Last week, um, we've gotten some great positive feedback about our episode, Sports Can Battle Racism, with Eric Albright and with DeAndre Hogan. And today, we have two very special guests to talk about restorative practices, which I kind of promoted at the end of last episode as tying in to the overall initiative um, that we were trying to get across to everyone with what was trying to be accomplished in sports can battle racism. Um, For the folks that are listening, if you want more background on this topic, you can tune in to our MPS YouTube channel, and it's the January 2021 episode of PIC, or what we call our Parent Information Committee. And there you can see in person on video um, the current Midland High School principal, Tila Sherman. Welcome, Tila. And you you. can also see the current Jefferson Middle School counselor, Lindsay Timmerman. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming to this episode and for giving us your thoughts and your wisdom and all of the knowledge about restorative practices, which is something that's been around for um, a couple of years and is really starting to become embedded into the psyche and the practice throughout the Midland Public Schools. So before we get going, um, let's talk a little bit about ourselves. So Tila, I know that you, before were the Jefferson Middle School principal, now you're the Midland High School principal. Congratulations on that Thank as well, you. too. Why don't you talk to people a little bit about your background before you became to Midland Public Schools? Originally grew up in Denver, and then I went to college in Arizona at Arizona State. Uh, graduated in 2002, and then uh, started teaching in inner city Phoenix. And so what did you teach, Tila? I taught history, but my I had a minor in African-American studies um, with an emphasis on female slavery. Okay. So while I was teaching, I got my uh, master's degree in ed leadership at Northern Arizona University and then uh, went into administration in 2008. I was a dean of discipline for three years at, uh, again, a very large inner city school. Uh, and then I went into curriculum and instruction for five years. And then my husband is from here, from Michigan. Yeah, I was going to pick at that because mm-hmm. it's probably is a tough life choice to leave sunny Arizona um, to the more, well, temperamental climate yeah, that, yeah. that you have up here in Michigan. So you did choose to come to I Michigan. Did. It and was a it's choice. Be, yeah, be, because your husband was from here is what mm-hmm. you said? He's not from Midland. He's from down by Kalamazoo. But I definitely had to adjust wardrobe choices. And right. Purchased a few more jackets. So, yeah. So then I uh, went to Jefferson. I was the AP at Jefferson, and it was a fabulous experience. Um, was And really dealt with discipline as the assistant principal. Um, certainly not my favorite thing to do. Uh, but then I became the principal. So, Well, again, thank you for coming. We, we appreciate thank you, you being here. Me. There's a couple more questions I'm going to ask you about your career pathway and prime champ, but we'll leave that um for just another couple of topics down the line. So, Lindsay, um, not to be left out, um, welcome to the podcast again. I appreciate it. And, and as I do a little bit of research on all of our guests here as well, um, I, I kind of like it when I see non-traditional geographic regions coming to Midland. And so, you know, Tila coming from Denver through Arizona into Michigan. And so I keep reading about Indiana when I see your background as well, too. So can you talk a little bit about that and your pathway and journey that's led you here to Midland Public Schools? Yes. So I grew up in West Michigan. I graduated okay. from Hamilton High School. So you're an original Michigan resident. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I sure am. My dad was an administrator my whole growing up on okay. the west side of the state. Um, I went to Hope College for okay. undergrad. I actually started as an education major with an English emphasis and kind of lost my way for a little bit. I ended up with a communication and creative writing double major, okay. went into marketing my first year out of college. From writing to marketing, mm-hmm. kind of a shift. <laughs> well, with that communication degree, I, I kind of okay. married well, but right. um, in my first year in marketing, just wasn't happy, missed working with kids, missed, um, I just wasn't feeling fulfilled the way I wanted to. So I applied to an AmeriCorps program called City Year, okay. which took me to a high school in San Antonio, Texas where I served my city year term. And that program focused on attendance and behavior and um, tutoring kind of educational support for students who were at risk. So I had a caseload of about 15 students who I worked with on those things. And that kind of brought me to school counseling as a potential fit for me. So after city year, I applied to a master's program at Butler University. What attracted you to Butler? Um, So (laughs) I was looking to find a program where my long-distance boyfriend at the time, he was looking for athletic training programs in Indiana or Michigan, and we knew we wanted to finally be back in the same area. So I applied to Butler knowing that it was a strong program and it would put us geographically closer. Right. At that point, you can say none of your business as well, too, (laughs) if you want to. I won't be offended on that one. So I was picking a little bit too close in there on that one because I was curious, you know, how from San Antonio to the whole Indiana region. And then you ended up landing in the Indianapolis Public Schools? I did. Okay. As I was pursuing my master's, I worked full-time as a behavior assistant and interventionist in a couple different Indianapolis public schools, and the then, K-8 grade And level. then eventually, somehow, Midland came calling. Yes. So while I was at Hope College, I ran cross-country, and I knew a couple of big-time runners on our team who were from Midland. So when my husband and I were looking to return to Michigan, we saw that the Midland job was open, and I was like, I, I know some guys from there. They're pretty cool, so Midland must be an all right spot, and I applied that way. That's an that's interesting how I story. ended up here. Yep. So there's got to be some kind of a correlation about runners and restorative practices. <laughs> I don't know how to make this connection, but, you know, pe- people may not know this. So you were a cross-country runner at Hope. Yep, that's what that's took right. you to Hope, right? Mm-hmm. And, Tila, you will never say this, but you were a very successful cross-country runner at Arizona State. And so I'm going to find somehow how those two tie into restorative practices. Not sure, but by the end of the podcast. It's just a vibe. It's just a vibe, right? So there's something there. Because you two have the reputation as the leaders of the restorative practices movement in Midland Public Schools, whether you want it or not. Um, When people say restorative practices, our administrative team says, Lindsay and Tila, um, those are the ones that we go to. And I'm going to pick it why that is in a second. But before we do, I think the listeners at this point at least need to know what restorative practices are. So, Tila, can you just take a shot at this? And let's, let's do, like, the abstract version, like the intro to the story. Restorative practices in 45 seconds or less, less go. So restorative practices are a shift away from zero-tolerance policies, and zero-tolerance policies became pretty popular in, right after Columbine. Um, and that was, the hope was that if you uh, set these really strict discipline guidelines, that it would almost scare kids into behaving, into conforming, uh, with the hopes that it would reduce behaviors or reduce at-risk behavior, whatever that looked like. Unfortunately, it had the opposite effect. There's this uptick in, uh, in discipline, I don't know, instances across the country. And so restorative is a shift in 
conflict resolution and relationship building. And it starts really in the classroom. Right. And so I said before that the two of you have gained this reputation as leaders of the restorative practice movement, and it comes from somewhere. And so, Lindsay, I don't know if this goes back to your time with AmeriCorps. Am I saying that right, that, that you were in or where it came from? Was it, was it a part of the Butler curriculum? Was it just something that you came across? Where did your passion for restorative practice and, and some of your expertise come from? Sure. So it was a, there was a big push toward it in IPS in Indianapolis Public Schools okay. while I was working there. And simultaneously, Butler provided us um, extra opportunities to learn about restorative practice and to implement it through our internships and through the courses that we were taking. Right. And, and Tila, you kind of shared a story during the PIC presentation that I referenced earlier. And I really want to kind of call that story out again, if you don't mind sharing that with our listeners. So I kind of know the answer to it, but I'd like to uh, have our listeners hear that. Uh, my role, it was really when... Um I was the dean of discipline, which is essentially, it was entry-level administration. You, if you went into admin in this district, you started at d- attendance and discipline. Okay. Um, and your job was really to, of course, manage student discipline. And I was at a high school with 16 group homes, a lot of transient students. Many of those students were in and out of jail. Uh, and the majority of them were minorities. Uh, Hispanic and and African-American. But my job, as it tied to the school-wide goal, is to maintain this label of an A. So in Arizona, schools would get letter grades. School grade, right. Based on all kinds of data points. We have it here, too. Right. Um, And one of those data points, well, many of those data points are tied to graduation, attendance. um, Suspension rates. Suspension rates. growth on standardized tests, sure. all those components. That's really common nationally. Yeah. Um, but my job was to um, suspend and uh, essentially help coach students out that really didn't fit this mold. And uh, I did it in a much more uh, glamorous way than it sounds right now. Um, but unfortunately, I was really good at this job so much so that it got me promoted. Um, what would happen is we functioned uh, very much so with the zero tolerance policy. You mm-hmm. get into a fight, you get a nine-day suspension. Automatic. Automatic. It didn't matter if you started it. It didn't even matter if you were jumped, so to speak. Right. If you fought back, if you yeah. if you swung a punch, you got nine days. You're involved, you're out. Regardless, right? And and we, we justified it. With, you must have done something that led up to right. that, which is – now that I say it out loud, it, it makes me cringe. Right. Um, so drugs, if you had any type of drugs on you, whether you were whatever, it, it was a nine-day suspension. We also had very strict credit policies. So in high school, you have to have a, a certain amount of credits in order to graduate. So what would happen is we would hold these credits over kids' students' heads. So if you hit 13 days of absences – no matter what, even if so, you had a nine day suspension, you only had four days. So if you got the flu, I would take your credit away. The ergo, you're not qualified or you're not on track to graduate on time. So, in the old analogy of the, the stick or the carrot, it was the stick. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it was, it made it really easy to coach kids out of our system. So here, I'm so embarrassed to even say that this was my job, but I had this list of subpar charter schools at the time. 
um, they were accredited, but they still weren't as quality as we were. Not the same education. No, experience. no, not at all. But uh, typically, it was a Hispanic Hispanic male or an African American male sitting across from me because statistically, that's just how discipline rolls out nationally. Um, these students would be sitting across from me, and I would coach them and their parents, and I would be doing it with this premise that I was really doing them a favor. You're not going to get credit here, but if you go here to the subpar learning system, you can get credit and then maybe come back. And they rarely came back. And as a matter of fact, most of those students ended up dropping out of high school. But it didn't affect my grade. It didn't affect the school's grade. Um, Actually, probably may have helped it. Um, oh, in it, a certain way, well, because, certainly. right, yeah, 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 so it, it's kind of a backward system, mm-hmm. right, where it was kind of incentivizing schools to make decisions that we all now realize, in hindsight, probably weren't the best for yeah. students, right? Well, and the downside is, uh, in a big city, it's easy to do, because it's, you know, they, they get lost in the, in the numbers, right? right. In uh, communities like Midland, we're a relatively small community. Um, those students, if they end up dropping out of school, they stay in Midland. They don't. They're still a part of our community. They're still a part of the Midland community, which I'm. I feel I'm responsible for, um, and so I, that can't be an option. Right. It just can't be. So we've learned a lot, right? Uh, you know, educational research has told us that that those zero tolerance policies just weren't working. Mm-hmm. Um, they were working for one reason, to get kids out. Um, but we know that academically, it was it was hurting kids, right? And so, Lindsay, I want to pick on you a little bit here, because sure. you said that IPS was stressing this, Butler was prepping you for this as well, too. Learned a lot about restorative practices and the benefit of them. And one of the things that you talked about in the pick episode that I think our listeners would benefit from is the relationship um, of restorative practices to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, this is an old psychology thing that anyone out there that's had a psychology class has always heard of Maslow's hierarchy. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's kind of a foundation for some of the theories and principles and practices of RP? Mm-hmm, sure. So to talk through Maslow's hierarchy real quick, we've got those basic needs um, that we're being fed, that we are having water, that we're getting enough sleep at night, the basic things that all people need to continue functioning. Those needs need to be met first. Then we can move on to our safety needs. We need to have shelter. We need to have people who are looking out for us. We need to feel secure in our situation. If those needs are met, then we can move up and start achieving at the higher level where we're establishing relationships and then going on to be able to engage in critical thinking and perform at the academic level. So where restorative practices and Maslow's hierarchy tie together is that if we're developing relationships with kids where we're understanding whether their needs are being met and if we're providing them with a sense of safety within the classroom, only then can they access those higher level uh, capabilities of thriving in their relationships and of performing academically and getting to know what their interests are. So restorative practices comes in and creates space for teachers and students to get to know each other and to have that, we stress a lot, psychological safety with each other because those things have to happen in order for the higher level functioning to occur. Yeah, and it's a pretty intricate process when you really think about it because, you know, now it's not just like you said, Tila, you fought nine days out goodbye, which could be a 10-minute meeting with a kid and Mm -hmm. 20 minutes of paperwork and it's over. 
But now it's a, you got into a fight. Why? And so what? And how can we prevent this from happening again? Which isn't easy. And it takes a lot more time. And one of the other points in your all's presentation that you did back in January of 2021 is shifting the mindset from a discipline approach to a community building approach. And so Teela, I'm going to pick on you to, to build on that a little bit. And kind of want you to take it toward what this may look like in process for a student as well too and use whatever kind of a scenario that you want to you don't have to use that fight type piece but but what does that look like um, when you are trying to shift to community building versus just straight punitive discipline well I would uh, suggest that it comes way before that fight even occurs okay uh, it's really laying a foundation of relationships and community um, to where the students feel like they're a part of it. They take ownership in the school. They take ownership in the actual community. Um, what If a fight were to occur, it's really the role of the facilitator or the administrator or the counselor or whomever is working with the students is to teach them how to resolve conflict. We as adults don't resolve conflict very well at all, and yet our expectations for kids, particularly at the elementary, middle school level is that we expect them to be able to resolve conflict. And what's even more interesting to me is when they return, they're expected, once their suspension is gone, the expectation is that that fight just disappeared. Those emotions just disappeared and everything is fine. And so there's a very significant process in implementing a a true restorative school. One is building relationships and it's really teaching uh, teachers how to implement restorative discipline. I put that in quotation marks. Yep. It's, um, restorative communities in the classroom. What's that look like? Let me pick at that well, a little bit. The goal is really to be able to give teachers, one, they set up working agreements. So they establish, another word for it is norms, but usually norms are established by the teacher. Mm-hmm. Working agreements or respect agreements are established by with the community, the students and the teacher establishes these agreements. So and they, students collaborating together mm-hmm. to set what the behavioral expectations yeah. or the relationship mm-hmm. or dialogue expectations right. are. Is that a better way? Yes, to, and okay. no longer relying on the adult to mandate how they need to interact with each other. They're holding each other accountable for these behaviors. And then when you get to this fabulous spot of where students start to hold themselves accountable for that behavior... Um, so that's one level, but then when you get into the, uh, the discipline level, instead of, if you have a conflict, instead of just snap uh, kicking a kid out of school or suspending a student, thus removing them from the community, you rather have uh, a conversation asking them, what led to these decisions? What else could you have done? Lindsay's a master at this. I've seen her do it. And it could be with just one student and the adult facilitating this, it takes a, it does take training. You can't just do it on a whim. Um, but it's a lot of questioning, and it's allowing the student to really have a voice. And then um, instead, because what we typically do is we insert our voice into how they should have resolved a conflict. And students don't take ownership of that because they don't buy into that. Uh, discipline is designed, the purpose of discipline is to change behavior, it's not to shame students from a community. It's not to kick them out of a community so much so that they'll come back and they'll comply. It doesn't work like that. What 
punitive discipline teaches is that you're bad and we can't have you here because you are polluting the environment. And so kids become very shameful and they dig themselves a deeper hole because they've internalized, I am bad, I'm going to mess this up no matter what. So I might as well do it with flair and get myself out of here. For what sure. restorative practice teaches is you are a human in this classroom and we all make mistakes. And so we're going to prepare for that and we're going to learn from it. And what you need to understand is that your behavior impacts others. Mm -hmm. So when you're being a human who makes mistakes, sometimes other people are going to get hurt and we're going to need to have a plan for how we fix that so that we can be back in community together. Right. And so I think one of the dynamics of this, too, that's hard to absorb um, from a public perspective, even internally, because, you know, Tila, I came up through the same era that you did where we went through the zero tolerance year out. And, you know, the public seemed to accept that at a point in time. Restorative practices can be student to student, but it also needs to be student to teacher sometimes as well, too. Or because, teacher to student. Or teacher mm -hmm. to student as well, too. And I'm sure those are some difficult conversations to facilitate. And Tila called you out, Lindsay, as the master in, in doing that. And so what, what does that look like? And that's really moving me into the, you know, what does this really look like at Jefferson? And I'm going to pick on Midland High in a minute as well, too. So on, on a daily basis, what does it look like at Jefferson? What, what could you deal with that you'd say, this is an example of restorative practices, not using kids' names, but just, you know, Johnny, okay. Susie, student A, student B, however you want to do it. Yeah. So what this looks like when it comes to those interpersonal one-on-one -on -one dynamics is often a student will come to speak with me or sometimes an adult will come to speak with me and share how upset they are about an interaction that occurred. And I will listen to that and I'll validate the feelings they were experiencing. And then I will really emphasize that the best way to work through this is probably going to be to have a courageous conversation with that person. And sometimes that person is an adult, and sometimes a student needs to let an adult know that when you called me out in this way, this is how that made me feel. And so I'll do pre-work with both the student and the adult. We'll come together and we'll have that conversation and come up for a plan for next time. So it's not pointing fingers, identifying who did what wrong, but just naming, we had an uncomfortable vibe between us. Right. And we want to avoid that vibe because it is not conducive to learning and it's not conducive to us being able to do our job here in school. So let's come up with a plan for next time. That can be between a student and another student. It can be between a student and an adult. And my hope is that eventually people will be so comfortable having those courageous conversations that they don't need to come to me first. They can just initiate that together. Right. It, it, yeah, it's actually addressing that vibe that Tila talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, you come back from an eight-day suspension because you and the teacher had a really bad interaction and you know, before it was, it never happened, but it did. And there's that tense, right? And nothing got resolved out of it. it, it like like you said, it, it's a lot of work, yeah. right? And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are very uncomfortable because for, well, to be honest, decades and decades and decades, it just wasn't the way that things were dealt with. And it sounds a kind of woo-woo sometimes to be like, there's a vibe. There's right. just a feeling here. No, but, but there is. you know, And that, that affects relationships and it affects behavior. And if we can't name it, then it's probably going to linger and create a problem down the road. For sure. Does it look different with the older students, Tila, at the high school level? Is it the same sort of concept that Lindsay's talking about at the middle school? I think what is different is that... Um, at the high school level, you're able to have more mature conversations. Like sometimes students are able to articulate what 
they know that they hurt somebody's feelings or they know what they're intentionally doing. I think sometimes at the sixth grade level, a lot of those students, not a lot, but there are students that are oblivious to how their behaviors affect an entire community. Different emotional maturity levels, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the process, though, is the same. It's quite similar. Right. So this is a, a, a difficult question, but you know, as educators, we always like to measure things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our, our closing question to wrap this up is, what does success look like? And it, it could be a statistic. It could be a vibe. It could be, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's a difficult question, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, because you all are the experts on this. So there has to be a final slide to the PowerPoint presentation in restorative practices training. You know, how do you know that restorative practices is working at Jefferson or at Midland? I know restorative practices are working with a specific student when the student stops coming to me saying, this is how terrible my day is and this is how my life is over. Let me tell you 15 reasons why I'm never going to make it at this school and starts coming to me saying, okay, I messed up. I know I messed up. Can we find a solution for this? I really want to move forward. That feeling of self-efficacy that, yeah, I mess up sometimes, maybe a lot more than any of us want me to, but I know that I can work through this, and every day I'm getting better at handling my problems. I think from a data perspective, although that's not the main point, uh, if you establish a quality community where student voice is heard, um, you're going to have a reduction in discipline referrals. You are going to have a reduction in suspension. It's not, so oftentimes when people say, oh, you do restorative practices, that means you just let kids off the hook. On the contrary, that means that we have engaging conversations with students about how to learn from this and never do it again. Um, When we give them the tools to interact with each other and how to behave in a classroom, a byproduct of that is a reduction in suspension and a reduction in um, behavior incidents. Yeah, thank you both for taking on this um, courageous journey that you're on because anytime change comes to any of us as adults, but especially the educational world, because boy, are we stubborn folks in, in the world of tradition. Usually educators became educators because the system worked for them. Typically, if you had a terrible educational experience, you don't want to become a teacher or an administrator or a counselor, but somehow that system just worked for the people that are in. And to try and change those mindsets can can be a very, very difficult journey. And I know here in Midland Public, we've been working on it for probably about five years now and in gaining steam, gaining momentum. And of course, you throw the pandemic in there and it throws a whole nother layer of complications onto everything. But um in listening to you both, it's evident that, you know, the ultimate goal is to try and help kids, um, not only academically, but to develop some critical life skills as well, too. Because as you mentioned, you know, later on in life, we as adults, we need to learn how to um, coexist. We need to learn how to deal with certain issues and get through them all. So to the both of you, thank you for dedicating your time to coming to talk with me today. Um, if you all as listeners want to learn more, again, you can go back to that um, Parent Information Committee episode on the MPS YouTube channel of January of 2021. And also you can tune into an upcoming board meeting where we're hoping to have Lindsay and Tila present to our Board of Education as well too. And so we're, we're looking forward to that presentation. To our listeners, thanks again for joining us. Uh, We can't wait for you to join us for episode 10. You're not going to want to miss that one. We're going to have our director of human resources, Kyle Kowalski, and some of his staff members in here. And the topic is going to be help wanted. 
job opportunities at the Midland Public Schools. So we are going to try and get you to listen to some of the wonderful job opportunities that we have at Midland Public. We're hiring each and every single day. We are seeking talented members of the community to come join the wonderful organization um, that MPS is. So we hope that you tune into that one because we're going to talk about jobs um, all across the spectrum. So we hope to see you then. Um, In the interim, stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to MPS Connections. We release new episodes on the first and third Thursday of almost every month. We encourage you to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date on the most current events happening around the district. You can find us in all the popular venues, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts.